Book Two, Part Six of A Confederate Girl's Diary. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Confederate Girl's Diary by Sarah Morgan Dawson. Book Two, Part Six, July twenty fifth to July twenty eighth, eighteen sixty two. July twenty fifth. An old man stopped here just now in a carriage and asked to see me. Such a sad, sick old man. He said his name was Caldwell and that passing through East Feliciana, Mrs. Flynn had asked him to deliver a message to us. Had we heard from our brothers? I told him the message from Mr. Bell. He commenced crying. There was one of them, he said, who got hurt. I held my breath and looked at him. He cried still more and said, yes, it was Gibbs, in the hand, not dangerous, but... Here I thought he meant to tell me worse. Perhaps he was dead, but I could not speak, so he went on, saying Lydia and the general had gone on to Richmond instantly, and had probably reached there before to-day. He took so long to tell it, and he cried so, that I was alarmed, until I thought perhaps he had lost one of his own sons, but I dared not ask him. Just then one of the horses fell down with sunstroke, and I begged the old gentleman to come in and rest until they could raise the horse, but he said no, he must go on to the river. He looked so sick that I could not help saying he looked too unwell to go beyond, and I wished he would come in but he burst into tears, saying, "'Yes, my child, I am very, very sick, but I must go on.' Poor old man with his snow-white beard. July 27th. I have my bird back. As I waked this morning I heard a well-known chirp in the streets and called to mother I knew it was Jimmy. Sure enough it is my bird.' Lucy Daigre has had him ever since the shelling, as a negro caught it that day and gave it to her. July twenty-ninth, This town, with its ten thousand soldiers, is more quiet than it was with the old population of seven thousand citizens. With this tremendous addition it is like a graveyard in its quiet at times. These poor soldiers are dying awfully. Thirteen went yesterday— on Sunday the boats discharged hundreds of sick at our landing. Some lay there all afternoon in the hot sun, waiting for the wagon to carry them to the hospital, which task occupied the whole evening. In the meantime these poor wretches lay uncovered on the ground in every stage of sickness. Cousin Will saw one lying dead without a creature by to notice when he died. Another was dying and muttering to himself as he lay too far gone to brush the flies out of his eyes and mouth, while no one was able to do it for him. Cousin Will helped him, though. Another, a mere skeleton, lay in the agonies of death, too, but he evidently had kind friends, for several were gathered around holding him up and fanning him, while his son leaned over him crying aloud. Tish says it was dreadful to hear the poor boy's sobs. All day our vis-a-vis, Bombstark, with his several aides, plies his hammer. All day Sunday he made coffins, and says he can't make them fast enough. Think, too, he is by no means the only undertaker here. 
Oh, I wish these poor men were safe in their own land. It is heartbreaking to see them die here like dogs with no one to say Godspeed. The Catholic priest went to see some some time ago, and going near one who lay in bed said some kind thing, when the man burst into tears and cried, Thank God I have heard one kind word before I die. In a few minutes the poor wretch was dead. July 31st. I believe I forgot to mention one little circumstance in my account of that first night at the deaf and dumb asylum, which at the time struck me with extreme disgust. That was seeing more than one man who had no females or babies to look after, who sought there a refuge from the coming attack. At daylight one dapper young man in fashionable array came stepping lightly on the gallery, carrying a neat carpet-bag in his hand. I hardly think he expected to meet two young ladies at that hour. I shall always believe he meant to creep away before anyone was up, for he certainly looked embarrassed when we looked up, though he assumed an air of indifference and passed by bravely swinging his sack but I think he wanted us to believe he was not ashamed. I dare say it was some little clerk in his holiday attire, but I can't say what contempt I felt for the creature. Honestly, I believe the women of the South are as brave as the men who are fighting, and certainly braver than the home guard. I have not yet been able to coax myself into being as alarmed as many I could name are. They say it is because I do not know the danger. Swat! I prefer being brave through ignorance to being afraid in consequence of my knowledge of coming events. Thank heaven my brothers are the bravest of the brave. I would despise them if they shrunk back, though Lucifer should dispute the path with them. Well, all men are not Morgan boys. They tell me cowards actually exist, though I hope I never met one. The poor men that went to the asylum for safety might not have what Lavinia calls a moral backbone. No wonder, then, they tumbled in there. Besides, I am told half the town spent the night on the banks of the river on that occasion, and perhaps these unfortunates were subject to colds and preferred the shelter of a good roof. Poor little fellows! How I longed to give them my hoops, corsets, and pretty blue organdy in exchange for their boots and breeches! Only I thought it was dangerous, for suppose the boots had been so used to running that they should prance off with me, too! Why, it would ruin my reputation! Miss Morgan in petticoats is thought to be as brave as any other man, but these borrowed articles might make her fly as fast as any other man, too, if panic is contagious, as the Yankees here have proved. One consolation is that all who could go with any propriety, and all who are worthy of fighting among those who believed in the South, are off at the seat of war, it is only trash and those who are obliged to remain for private reasons who still remain. Let us count those young individuals as trash and step over them. Only ask heaven why you were made with a man's heart and a female form, and those creatures with beards were made as bewitchingly nervous. August 2nd, Saturday. I had thought my running days were over, 
So little did I anticipate another stampede that I did not notice the report of the attack that was prophesied for night before last, and went to bed without gathering my clothes. But today comes a hasty note from Charlie, telling us to leave instantly, as General Breckinridge is advancing with ten thousand men to attack us, and at twelve midnight yesterday was within thirty-four miles. He begged us to leave to-day. There would be trouble before to-morrow night. It was so earnest, and he asserted all so positively, that we are going to Phillies this evening to stay a week, as they say eight days will decide. Ah, me, our beautiful town! Still, I am skeptical. If it must be, pray heaven that the blow comes now. Nothing can be equal to suspense. These poor men— are they not dying fast enough? Will Baumstark have orders for an unlimited supply of coffins next week? Only Charlie's family, ours, and the Brunos know it. He enjoined the strictest secrecy, though the Brunos sent to swear Mrs. Lukes in, as she, like ourselves, has no protector. I would like to tell everybody, but it will warn the Federals. I almost wish we too had been left in ignorance— it is cruel to keep it to ourselves. I believe the Yankees expect something. They say they have armed fifteen hundred negroes. Foes and insurrection in town, assailing friends outside. Nice time. Our cavalry has passed the A-meet. Poor Charlie has come all the way to the ferry landing on the other side to warn us. If we do not take advantage, it will not be for want of knowing what is to come. How considerate it was in him to come such a long way! I am charmingly excited. If I only had a pair of breeches, my happiness would be complete. Let it come. I lose all, but in heaven's name let us have it over at once. My heart fails when I look around, but spit fire and have an end to this at once. Liberty forever, though death be the penalty. Treason! Here lies my pass at my elbow, in which has been gratuitously inserted that parties holding it are considered to give their parole not to give information, countenance, aid, or support to the so-called confed S. As I did not apply for it, agree to the stipulation, or think it by any means proper, I don't consider it binding. I could not give my word for doing what my conscience tells me is right— I cross with this book full of treason. It countenances the C.S. Shall I burn it? That is a stupid ruse. They are too wise to ask you to subscribe to it. They just append it. August 3rd, Westover. Enfin nous sommes arrivés. And after what a trip. As we reached the ferry, I discovered I had lost the pass, and had to walk back and search for it, aided by Mr. Tunnard, who met me in my distress, as it has always been his luck to do. But somebody had already adopted the valuable trifle, so I had to rejoin Mother and Miriam without it. The guard resolutely refused to let us pass until we got another, so off flew Mr. Tunnard to procure a second, which was vastly agreeable, as I knew he would have to pay twenty-five cents for it, Yankees having come down as low as that to procure money. But he had gone before we could say anything, and soon returned with the two bits worth of leave of absence. 
Then we crossed the river in a little skiff after sundown, in a most unpleasant state of uncertainty as to whether the carriage was waiting at the landing for us, for I did not know if Philly had received my note, and there was no place to go if she had not sent for us. However, we found it waiting, and leaving Mother and Miriam to pay the ferry, I walked on to put our bundles in the carriage. A man stepped forward, calling me by name, and giving me a note from Charlie before I reached it, and as I placed my foot on the step, another came up and told me he had left a letter at home for me at one o'clock. I bowed yes. It was from Howell, must answer to-morrow. He asked me not to mention it was him. A little servant had asked his name, but he told her it was none of her business. I laughed at the refined remark, and said I had not known who it was. He would hardly have been flattered to hear I had not even inquired. He modestly said that he was afraid I had seen him through the window. Oh, no, I assured him. Well, please, anyhow, don't say it's me, he pleaded most grammatically. I answered, smiling, I did not know who it was then. I know no more now, and if you choose, I shall always remain in ignorance of your identity. He burst out laughing, and went off with, Oh, do, Miss Morgan, forget all about me, as though it was a difficult matter. Who can he be? We had a delightful drive in the moonlight, though it was rather long, and it was quite late when we drove up to the house, and were most cordially welcomed by the family. We sat up late on the balcony, listening for the report of cannon, which, however, did not come. Baton Rouge is to be attacked to-morrow, they say. Pray heaven it will all be over by that time. Nobody seems to doubt it over here. A while ago a long procession of guerrillas passed a short distance from the house, looking for a party of Yankees they heard of in the neighborhood, and waved their hats, for lack of handkerchiefs, to us as we stood on the balcony. I call this writing under difficulties. Here I am employing my knee as a desk, a position that is not very natural to me, and by no means comfortable. I feel so stupid from want of sleep last night that no wonder I am not even respectably bright. I think I shall lay aside this diary with my pen— I have procured a nicer one, so I no longer regret its close. What a stupid thing it is! As I look back, how faintly have I expressed things that produced the greatest impression on me at the time, and how completely have I omitted the very things I should have recorded! Bah! It is all the same trash, and here is an end of it for this volume— whose stupidity can only be equalled by the one that precedes and the one that is to follow it. But who expects to be interesting in war times? If I kept a diary of events, it would be one tissue of lies. Think, there was no battle on the 10th or 11th, McClellan is not dead, and Gibbs was never wounded. After that, who believes in reliable information? Not I. End of Book Two